Hi. This is fun. It's been a, it's been a while since I've taught, so this is uh, this is good. Um, I'm assuming you know why you're here, so I don't need to remind you. But we're um, we're here studying Daniel. I um, I was talking with a friend uh, last night actually, and we were talking about um, the importance of stories. I think he was coming out of a business world and kind of a business mindset, and he, his wife is an English teacher, and she was just talking about like the, the value of stories to help engage on sort of the creative side of our brains. And we had gotten on the topic of that, and we're realizing that oftentimes for Christians, we, um, when we look at books and things, we look for things that will directly have an impact or help us. And I think that's part of the... the, the deep desire in all of us to be conformed more and more like Jesus. And so we're looking for things that will help us uh, grow in that. Um, but the really beautiful thing about stories is they engage in us um, a sense of creativity, a sense of wonder. And when we only approach Scripture from the, like, what can I get out of this mindset, we often uh, tend to miss a, a grander narrative of this beautiful story that God is writing, and even the beautiful stories that the individual authors of the books are writing. And so while we're looking at the book of Daniel for lessons about life, things that we can get from that, we also want to approach the book of Daniel with an understanding that it is a story. It is a well-crafted work of art that is meant to to bring us to some sort of idea that the author wants us to see. Um, My my wife and I um, have different philosophies when it comes to reading books. Um, One, she reads more than I do. Um, But if um, if something is too... uh, tense for her. She just, like, needs to know. It drives me insane, but she'll always flip to the end of the book just to, like, know how things end. And for me, that drives me insane because I love, um, I love the journey and the process. Like, if I'm watching a movie, I don't want to know what happens at the end in order to be able to finish that movie. I like, I like that because the, the mindset, at least, that, that I have, um, which I think is right because, you know, I have a microphone, so it's right. Um, but the mindset that I have is like the author and the director or the writer of whatever you're watching had an idea of where they wanted to take you. And when you let them take you on that journey, when you look at it, hopefully you've arrived at some sort of thing they've wanted you to learn. And we approach that today with the book of Daniel. So um, let, me, uh, let me make sure my slides are working. There we go, Daniel 10 through 11. Um, But before we jump into Daniel 10 through 11, um, let's pray. Holy Father, we are grateful that you have gifted us with your word. We're grateful that you chose to write through human hands, that you allowed the fingerprints and the imprints of these authors and their creativity, which is a reflection of your creativity, uh, to be put on display through the works that they've created for us, inspired by you. Um, God, we're so grateful that you are with us in all that we do. We're grateful for the message of Daniel and the wonderful story of hope that it is for God's people. It's your name that we pray. Amen. So uh, that would be my first kind of point for us all to recognize. As we begin, the book of Daniel is telling a story, and it's, it's a really good story. Um, and I don't mean it's a really good story and that it points to Jesus. Well, that is kind of the point of it. I, I, I would say it is a really good story because it's a purposefully crafted narrative that's designed to highlight themes and ideas for the reader. There are things that Daniel wants us to see, and the ways in which uh, the book has been crafted is to emphasize the things in which Daniel wants us to see. We've seen that through our study in the, the more narrative portion, um, and sometimes we switch and we say, okay, one through six is the narrative, and so there's a story there, and then seven through ten is not the narrative, it's prophecy, and so there's no story there, it's just information, and really that, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, it's a perfectly crafted narrative designed to highlight themes and ideas for the reader, um, uh, it's not as if Daniel just had a bunch of ideas and he vomited them on a page and said, that's good, that'll work. He put them in a specific order to show us some things. So what we're going to do is we are going to walk through a couple of the previous um, uh, prophetic sections in the book of Daniel um, with, the, with the point of highlighting some of these things that Daniel kind of parses out, and then we'll give a walkthrough of, of 1 through 9, how we got to 10, and then we'll dive into 10 and 11. Um, and I think... What's a good, I was trying to think of a good analogy for 10. I'll, I'll save it. I'll save it till we get to 10. But here we go. Daniel 2, there, there's a purpose in, in highlighting 2, 7, and 8, because all of these prophecies, that, these visions that Daniel sees or that someone else sees are, are layered or built upon further in the book, um, and that's a part of his design. So in Daniel chapter 2, uh, 
there is a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has, and if you recall the story, he he says, I want someone to tell me what my dream is and what it was their interpretation of it. And so no one else can do it except for Daniel, and Daniel says, uh, here's what you dreamed, and he shows him this image, which is an image of a statue. It has a head of gold, chest and arm of silver, thighs and a belly or torso of bronze, and legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And so this is this, it perplexes King Nebuchadnezzar when he sees this image. Um, and then later in this image, it is struck by a rock that then this rock becomes a mountain. And out of this mountain, this, this kingdom is set up that's not made by human hands. And so we get sort of a glimpse of, of some sort of transition of power, some sort of kingdoms. And Daniel says a little bit about each of these um, different sections of the statue, inferring that they are indeed future kingdoms that will be set up. So in the very first one, all we get to know exactly who the head of gold is, is Daniel says, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. The pinnacle of human kingdoms at this point is you, and that's you. And then he says of the next kingdom, it's, a, it's one of arms and silver. He says, it's, it's an inferior kingdom. Not much is said about this kingdom in chapter 2. It's an inferior kingdom. Of the, third king, of the third kingdom, he says it's going to rule over the whole earth. Now, if you're following from chapter 7, this should sound familiar, if you remember the teaching we had on chapter 7, and we'll get there in just a moment. And then the legs, and, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay, this kingdom, he says, will crush and break and destroy. And so he's, in the very beginning of the book, he's presenting to the reader this idea that there are future kingdoms to come. They are characterized by certain traits, um, and there is a sequence of kingdoms that will happen but the ultimate theme that he points to at the end of chapter 2 is they will be destroyed. These kingdoms will be destroyed, and a new kingdom will set up, and it will be permanent, and it's not set up by human hands. So now we go to, let's see, did I mix this up? Daniel 7, I mixed it up. So Daniel 7, which is the next sort of uh, vision in sequential order in the book, and uh, in Daniel 7... There is another, Daniel himself now has this vision, and Darren walked us through this, so we don't need to go into great detail, but he sees four beasts. There's a lion with eagle's wings, a bear raised on one side who's also holding like ribs in his hand, which is this crazy thing for him to see. A leopard with four wings, and then the fourth beast is so terrifying he can't even describe it with words except the fact to say it's horrible and it has a lot of horns. And it's really confusing. Even, even Darren highlighted when we were teaching, when he was teaching on it, was that even Daniel himself is like, I don't understand what this means. So you have a, a dream interpreter who has a dream himself who can't interpret it. And it's, this vision is explained to him by an angelic messenger. And he, uh, he gives him some hints, and Darren kind of walked us through what we believe to be most likely what each of these kingdoms represents. And so similar to the head of gold, the line of eagle's wings represents Babylon. The idea of the bear raised on one side is, a, is probably a reference to the Medo-Persian Empire, where uh, history will tell us that the Persian Empire becomes stronger than the Median Empire. And so the idea of raised on one side gives us that picture. The leopard with four wings is an image of Greece. Um, the idea that it spreads out to all uh, corners of the world, takes over the world. And the great horned beast, most likely we believe to be an image of Rome. Um, so Darren walked us through that. If you'd like a more in-depth version, you can go back and watch that teaching. But the general idea of how this ends up is that this, this final beast um, is horrible, and he has a great impact on uh, the people of God, so the Jewish people. He destroys them and tack- tackles them. All these beasts, they're, they're horrible, but they are slain, and the Son of Man is given authority, and an everlasting kingdom is set up. So that's two. Now the next vision that we see, which we'll go back through is Daniel chapter 8. And this is uh, another beastly image of kingdoms that we see, and these are uh, just two. And if you were to take uh, these, let's see, right here, the head of gold, that that left one, the images we see in chapter 2, and the images we see in chapter 7, we can sort of layer them up and say they're probably talking about the same kingdoms, just in a different way, slightly more in depth. Now, at this point in Daniel chapter 8, what we think is happening is they're narrowing in on two specific kingdoms, which would be the kingdom of the Median and Persian Empire and the kingdom of Greece. Now, we know this to happen in history, um, and even the angel who will later say this kingdom is this one that you saw, the ram with two horns, that's the Median and Persian Empire, and the one-horned goat that shows up and is weird and floats around, that's Greece. So, um, this ram with two horns, we think it's Median and Persian Empire. This one-horned goat is Greece. And so we have this, like, focusing in on two specific kingdoms after giving a picture of four kingdoms that will happen. So this focusing in on two specific kingdoms. 
of these two, especially this last kingdom, he says, astounding devastation will occur. They'll destroy the holy people. Um, But ultimately, as we've seen in the previous ones, this kingdom will be destroyed not by human power. And the general idea would be that an everlasting kingdom is going to be set up. So, So three times in the book of Daniel, Daniel has shown us these incredible, these incredibly like disgusting and dark and destructive kingdoms, but concluded them with this idea of saying they get destroyed and God, and God sets up an eternal and everlasting kingdom. So we'll take all of these ideas and we will walk through sort of all of Daniel 1 through 9 with a few kind of key things that help us see a pattern of what Daniel might be trying to show us. So in the very beginning of Daniel, we see a story of, of three young men, four young men choosing faithfulness. The, the purpose of that story is to show four young men who just decided that they were going to choose faithfulness to God over what might have been seen as a trivial er- issue for, for most people around them. Um, in Daniel chapter 2 is when we see the image of a destructive human kingdoms that will one day be destroyed by an eternal kingdom. And then again in Daniel chapter 3, we see another story of choosing faithfulness. Um, in Daniel chapter 4 and 5 are two stories of humbling done by God. So we see one of King Nebuchadnezzar, he goes crazy, and then he recognizes God as the ultimate authority, and his sanity is restored to him. But the, it, the ultimate idea is that he is humbled by God. And then we see Daniel chapter 5, his son Belshazzar is humbled by God, although he did not recognize his status and right position between God. He, he disobeyed God, and he violated God's like, beauty and splendor by drinking from his, like, the things from his temple, and so he was destroyed. It's an act of humbling brought upon by this king. So two different stories, sort of cautionary tales. One is a person recognizing who God is and re- being restored, and another person is someone not recognizing and being destroyed. But the idea is they were humbled. Um, and then we see in Daniel 6, another story of Daniel choosing faithfulness. Uh, this is Daniel in the lion's den. That's the general idea here. Daniel chose faithfulness over God rather than violate his covenant um, and decided to be faithful. And then in Daniel chapter 7 and 8, like we discussed, we see two visions of, of gradually increasingly disgusting beastly kingdoms. So if you're following the pattern, we see faithfulness, kingdom of destruction, God will be victorious, another story of faithfulness, and then in the middle we see this idea of humbling. Now we get to chapter 9, and we read this account of Daniel, who at the same time models faithfulness and humility. The idea that, that Kristen talked about a few weeks ago is that Daniel joined himself in with the sins of the people of Israel. He, he didn't say, like, my people have sinned, but I'm good. Although we would look at Daniel's life and say, you have been incredibly faithful. He joined himself in with his people, humbled himself, and, and kind of like in solidarity with his nation, um, said that he was sinful and needed God to come. So the general idea that we've seen so far is faithfulness, a human kingdom that will, will be destroyed, more faithfulness, humbling, faithfulness, more human kingdoms, and then another story of faithfulness and humility. So the, there's, there's a pattern here of Daniel trying to show people that in the midst of darkness, in the midst of these kingdoms that are rising up, in increasing severity, if you, if you walk through these stories, the very first story is not that big of an issue. It, it might seem like it as we read it sort of with context, but it's about what they're going to eat. They're not being offered to put to death right there in that story. The very first story in Daniel chapter 1 isn't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of what they face later on in their lives. These young men were just saying, I'm not, I don't want to eat this food. I don't want to defile myself. But later, increasing severity, we see in Daniel chapter 3, it's not a matter of food. It's a matter of who they're going to bow down to. Increasing in severity. In the same pattern, Daniel chapter 2 is just a statue. It's a statue of human kingdoms that will come. A brief mention of sort of the, the darkness of how they will be, but it's it's overall not a very looming image that we see later. And even for Daniel, he sees this image and he's worried about it. But we get to Daniel chapter 7, and these beastly kingdoms are, are wrecking him. He can hardly stand, and it's like really tormenting him to see these images. He, and he does, he's so confused, and it takes a lot out of him. So we see an increasing point to faithfulness and humility on the part of God's people. We see an increasing severity in the destruction and, and disgusting nature of human kingdoms when they choose for themselves what's right and what's wrong. And we see this call of God on the people of Israel and of Daniel, the author, to remind the people of God that in seasons like this, faithfulness and humility are the key in these seasons. Humble yourself, recognize your need for God, choose faithfulness despite whatever circumstance you, you find yourself in which as we come to chapter 10, is a big call. Because when we get to chapter 10, we get an even more narrowed-in picture of what we see in Daniel chapter 8. 
We see sort of another representation of these two kingdoms, but rather than being beasts, we see them represented by a king of the north and a king of the south. And this sort of predictive prophecy of what will happen, and in keeping with the rest of the book, it is increasingly severe and and in-depth about what's going to happen to God's people. So we see in Daniel chapter 10 through 12, we're going to get another image of a destructive kingdom ended by an eternal kingdom. But unlike the rest of Daniel chapter 12, Daniel, uh, we don't get another story of, of faithfulness. And you can sort of see that as sort of an open-ended like offer to the reader. You know what will happen. Now what do you think you should choose? And it's sort of a leading question saying, he's like, duh, choose faithfulness and humility. I've shown you how in every increasingly destructive and dark situation, humility and faithfulness are the key which I think is huge, because when we try to interpret Daniel 10 through 11, it's easy for us to point, like, what we should do, and what we shouldn't do, what we should do. And you'll see a lot of different examples of Jewish people responding in different ways. And the one that's highlighted are the people who choose faithfulness. Faithfulness to God above all, which is um, increasingly difficult. If you follow the pattern of increasingly severe situation, it's, it becomes increasingly difficult to remain faithful. Um, so Daniel chapter 9 is this this great prayer, Daniel's burden for his people, and um, he's praying, and he's met by an angelic messenger, and he's, get, he's being told that the destructions, all the things that he wanted to end are actually going to be happening a lot longer. And then we get to Daniel chapter 10 and 11, and we have a sort of a bigger picture of, of what we think is happening in Daniel chapter 8, which is a battle between probably like the last kingdom of Greece. It's, it's a little complicated, but we're going to do our best to try and understand what's happening in 10 and 11. Um, okay, before we jump into 10 and 11, I want to take, uh, I want to make a brief note on prophecy. So Daniel is a prophetic work in that it is a book that contains a variety of styles of literature. There's this beautiful crafted poem of a prayer in chapter 9. There is a narrative story in 1 through 6. There is prophecy in 2 and 7 and 8. So basically any genre of biblical literature, we're, we're getting it in the book of Daniel. Um, and in order to understand how we read those, we need to know a little bit about prophecy and what it's for and what it's not for. Um, typically, uh, what we want from prophecy is not what we get. And what I mean by that is prophecy, prophecy is not, uh, in the Bible, analogous to our history. So when we read history, we are reading it because it has its history's purpose is to show us in great detail what has happened up to this point. Sometimes we read prophecy and we say, I want to know what will happen up to that point. And that's not necessarily the goal of prophecy. Um, If we were to go to the next slide, we'll see prophecy is not analogous to history. It moves to underscore the certainty of future events rather than detail the sequence of events. That does not mean that we don't get detailed events in the book of Daniel or in other prophecies. But if we read it looking for detailed events exclusively, we'll sort of miss kind of the overall point of what Daniel's trying to do. And so we, we hold both of those together. Um, and the, the biggest thing that we need to understand is that oftentimes moral, the moral impression of prophecy is the goal of the people. It's to give them an idea of what might happen, um, but to push them towards some sort of idea. And as we've seen through Daniel, the idea is remain faithful and humble yourselves, come what may. Um, it should produce hope, and promote purity of living by showing us God's goals and calling us to conform to them. So this, this prophecy that we're going to read actually doesn't sound very hopeful. And as we read it, the question that we probably should be asking is, how is this hopeful? If prophecy should produce in us some sort of hope, not dismay, if God gives the people of God a picture of what will happen, he doesn't give them a picture of what will happen to cause them dismay and stress. He's giving them a picture of what will happen to give them something to hold on to. And so as we read this, we want to ask that question, how is this hopeful? Or what is there a hope in? And we've seen, in, in, it's no surprise, we've seen in 2 and 7 and 8, the hope is that one day God will confront these human kingdoms and this evil in the world and will establish his everlasting kingdom. That is the hope. And it's the hope that people for hundreds of years have clung to in the book of Daniel. This is a book that was read through the entire time of the Jewish persecution that we're going to hear about. This is a book that's continued to be read because it reminds us that God is faithful and we're called to be faithful despite what we see in the world. Um, so, that's a brief note on prophecy. We're going to write, we're going to jump into chapter 10, and I'm going to read it. Um, and then I'm going to be using a, a phrase that some of you might have heard of and some of you might not. There is a, a common internet phrase called TLDR, which stands for too long didn't read. 
Basically, what it's asking for is if someone makes this long, this long post, and it's so much information, it's really hard to grasp, they're asking for like the abridged version. And so well, I'll give you the TLDR, because I would love you to read this on your own, but to be quite honest with you, I sat down and read this multiple times, and it still jumbled up in my brain. And I, um, I did not include, although I should have, I sat down with a friend of mine, and we were just trying to trace through all of the movements we see in chapter 11, and the whiteboard was just a disgusting mess of all these different things. It's really hard to keep track of. And so I'll give you sort of the abridged notes, which I would love to say is a result of my own genius, but it's not. It's a result of other people putting hard work and years and years of diligent study and doctoral work and commentary. So I'll give you some idea of what's happening um, as we go through this. But I'm going to read chapter 10, and... Um, Oh, yes, I remembered I wanted to say this. So my wife and I like to go surfing, and every once in a while, when we go down to go surfing, it's clear when we're uh, on our drive down, and we're leaving early in the morning. We get there, and it's incredibly foggy. It's like you can't see 15 feet in front of you, which is a big deal when a potentially large wave could be coming to crash on you, and you're in the water. And while we're surfing, and it's foggy, every once in a while, we'll get moments of clarity where the sun will peak, and you can see the lifeguard tower that helps you orient yourself to remember, so you know where your car is, so you don't have to walk three miles. You can see a wave behind you coming, and you get like 30 seconds to five minutes of clarity, and then it just like covers up again, and you can't see anything. And you have to hold on to like some moments of clarity, um, knowing that there is something there, but also knowing that like you kind of just don't know where you are at some point. So as we read 10 and 11, there are a lot of questions that are going to feel like, oh, it sounds really clear. And a lot of things you're like, what? Where are we? So um, we'll keep that in mind. But uh, we're going to read chapter 10. Uh, I am reading in the NIV because that's what I've been reading this entire time because it's the biggest Bible I have and doesn't flop over when I try to use it for studying. So if you have ESV and it says something different, I would encourage you to highlight why it says something different and use that as an opportunity for future study because that's helpful. Okay, so I'm going to read chapter 10. I'll give you some notes on it, and then uh, I'll give you the the TLDR. Here we go. Chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no choice food or meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until three weeks were over. So Daniel's pretty sad. No lotion. Anyways. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite or topaz. His face was like lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision, and I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. So, we're just to pause here. Daniel is sad. We don't necessarily know why. He has this vision, and it's so overwhelming that he basically passes out. And nobody else can see this vision, but they're looking at how terrified Daniel is that they run away. So this is like, if there's ever a moment to say like, oh, I, I desire an interaction with an angelic creature, it doesn't seem to go well for anybody in this moment. So Daniel, he's so distressed. He says, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. So he's like shakily on his knees and then he's standing up and he's still freaking out of what he's seeing. And it's all because of the image that's before him, which is this man dressed in linen uh, who is very colorful and very shiny. So he says, um, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and humble yourselves before your God, your words were heard and I've come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face forward to the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man... Then the one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I'm helpless. 
How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man, highly esteemed. He said, Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened, and he said, and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. And so he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come, but I will first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince, and in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand in support and protect him. Okay. <clears throat> Here we go. So, there are a lot of questions that I had as I was reading this passage, and the very first one was, why is Daniel so sad? He's mourning. And honestly, this is the part that makes it really challenging, I think, with some of these books, is that I, I probably read four different commentaries, and each one was, like, equally convincing of one reason why Daniel is sad. And then I go read the other one, and I'd be like, oh, no, no, that one's wrong, this one's right. And then I read another one, I'd be like, no, no, I think that one's right, actually. So there are a couple of different reasons. I'll present them all to you. I couldn't tell you which one I actually know to be true. To, I, I couldn't tell you which one I stand by and be like, that, that's why he's sad. It's also not that important why he's sad. It's just important for us to know that he is sad. Um, it could be that he is sad because of the difficulties faced by the, cap, uh, by the captive Israelites who have now been given permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. In the book of Ezra, we hear that in the first year of, king of, of, the, of Cyrus, the king of Persia, there was a decree, a decree that went out that allowed them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. Um, but if you read the book of Ezra uh, and Nehemiah, you find that it doesn't go that well for them. While they're able to go back and build the temple, uh, uh, an underwhelming amount of people decided to go back. Uh, a decent amount wanted to, but not that many people did. And so there's a sadness there potentially because uh, his people don't have a desire and a love for God in their temple like he thought they would. Um, we even see a picture in, in Ezra chapter 10 of Ezra himself praying because of the faithlessness, praying a very similar prayer and mourning because of the faithlessness of the people of Israel in that moment. Um, and we also see that while they were building the temple, Ezra 4 tells us that they were persecuted. There were a bunch of people, there were some Samaritans that wanted to help building the temple, and they were, and the Israelites were like, no, we're going to do it. And then the Samaritans were like, great, we're going to figure out a way legally to keep you from building your temple. And they basically hounded them the entire time they went about it. So they, they didn't have an easy time rebuilding this temple. So it could be that. Um, another view would hold that it's three weeks away from the vision we have in chapter 9. And so Daniel is still wrecked. If you hold this view, Daniel is still emotionally wrecked because of what he saw in chapter 9, which I think Zach referred to that as the, the abysmal pit of prophecy or something like that, just like the weird math you have to do to understand maybe when something might happen. Um, but he could have seen that vision, and this might fall in line three weeks after when he got that. So he's been praying for three weeks because he's so distressed. It, there's compelling arguments for why that might be. Um, um, or, which I was reading this, and my first thought was like, oh, is he sad because he's already seen the vision we're going to hear about in 11, and that's really causing him distress? And there's nothing I could really like plant the flag in and say it's definitely that. So all we know is he's sad. Um, and something is causing great distress. And there's a key idea, I think, that's important in all three of those interpretations is that he is saddened concerning his people. Like all of those kind of point to the idea that like something's happening to his people and he's pretty bummed about it to the point where like he would fast and like not partake in like choice food or wine or like it's kind of like the idea he's not even like taking a shower because he's so sad. Um, and fasting is tough, so it's hard enough to go without your phone for a few days, let alone a few hours. He went without all the, like, basically the pleasures of his time for three weeks because he was so sad. Um, he sees this crazy figure and basically faints, and my first question was, who is this guy he's talking to? And I literally read one commentary who, the guy was like, yeah, absolutely, he's talking to Gabriel. The same angel who gave him the vision in chapter nine, he's talking to Gabriel for sure, no doubt, absolutely Gabriel. And then I read another one that was like, yeah, it's definitely not Gabriel. This is definitely what's called a theophany. Why don't you know that? You're dumb if you don't know that. Like, all this stuff. So it's, a, it's really confusing. And so um, the imagery that we see of this, this person that Daniel is talking to is, in a sense, um, it's, it's heavenly, you could say. There are other images um, that we see in Ezekiel or Isaiah— um, of, of a messenger with this sort of same, like, appearance or vibe, I guess you could say, who talks to him. Um, 
And some people, like in my NIV study Bible, it says so confidently, this is a vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus. Like, this is Jesus. That's what they'll point to. And I've read that. I'm like, great. I want to know how you got so sure about this. I don't, it's hard to figure out how you could like firmly plant one or the other because, yeah, so I don't know if it's, it's, they call it a theophany, which is a, a, a picture of God made manifest to people in that day. So it would be similar to the idea of like the burning bush being presented to Moses. It is God showing himself to Moses in a way that is capable for him to see without being destroyed. Um, so it might be. Other people call it an angelophany. And that's just like an angelic picture of God that's not, that's distinctly not God, but is a lot like him. Honestly, I'm scratching my head. I'm like, I don't know. It's, it's an angelic vision. It represents God in some ways. It points to God and it gives him a message. Um, but there's also this really weird thing that happens in 10 where this, this angelic or God-like creature who is a representation of, of something tells Daniel that the reason he's been delayed is because he was fighting against another prince of Persia. And then he goes to talk about Michael, another whom we know to be another angel, supporting him in, in this prince who's resisting him. And then he's like, yeah, Michael's, you know this, Michael's your prince. He protects your people. Which, to me as the reader, I'm like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that Israel's protector, prince, was Michael. I know he's an angel. All this stuff, there's all these questions that spark about, like, there's another layer here of things that are happening that this, this angelic messenger sort of mentions casually like it's common knowledge. But to the reader, it slips in because we see prophetic visions of future kingdoms, and you and I can read those and go, those are uh, figurative images of things we believe to happen. But then we look at this and we're like, wait, but there's, there's spiritual princes who are fighting each other, and it's happening in real time, and it's not a figurative, it's not a figurative image. This is something he's saying is happening. Um, I love one commentator's, the way that they put this is, the veil is being pulled back on a reality unseen in this, in this image. There is a veil that's being lifted, and Daniel and us, the readers, are getting a glimpse of a unseen spiritual reality. There are a few uh, other passages in Scripture that can give us an idea of what's happening here. Um, in Deuteronomy 32, there is this picture, 32, 8, and 9, I'm not going to read it, but if you wanted to go back and read it yourself, 32, 8, and 9. There's a picture of God dividing up lands and kingdoms and giving them to the sons of God to have some sort of like authority or responsibility over. And earlier in the book of Genesis, we see these sons of God um, appear in the, in the narrative, in the story, and they are uh, most likely angelic beings who came down, had intimate relations with women, and then produced sons called the Nephilim, nor Nephilim. And so it's all this kind of mysterious, like, what's going on here? It seems like there's another layer to a reality that maybe we don't quite get a glimpse of. Um, And later in the book of Jude, um, the author Jude will will criticize spiritual beings for uh, basically uh, leaving their position of authority and rejecting the assignment they have. And so all of this points us to the understanding that, that there is a reality that you and I cannot see most people cannot see, but it is a true reality of a spiritual world that has deep impact on our world, that is under the authority of God, but there are also spiritual rebels. And so Daniel is, uh, it's not the point of Daniel. I would say sometimes when we read prophecy, if we don't understand the purpose, which is to provide some sort of comfort and hope, and to give a picture of future events and what we should do, sort of the moral impression of what we should do. It could be potential for us to read this and be like, great, now I know that every spiritual, every evil is a result of spiritual, like demons, and I need to go fight demons. And I would say that's probably not the application of what we're getting here, because the author doesn't place too much emphasis on it. He just mentions it like it's a thing. He just says, oh yeah, and this is happening. By the way, let me tell you what's going to happen. It doesn't seem important to Daniel to to rest on, but it's important for us to know because there is a level of, of reality we need to be aware of. Um, it's what later uh, authors in the New Testament will refer to as what our struggle is actually against. In Ephesians 6, it says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness, authorities, principalities. They use this sort of similar idea. But reminding us that there is evil out there, and as a result of spiritual darkness and evil, I mean, it has an impact on our world, and it's something we should at least be aware of is happening. Um, so that's Daniel chapter 10. Clear? Everyone understand exactly what's happening? Sure. The, the, as promised, your TLDR, 
Daniel is receiving a message from God that will happen, about what will happen to his people. The veil is being torn back on a reality unseen. There's more there. It's mysterious. It's like worth, it's like, if it's sparking in you a curiosity, that's a good thing. As we read God's word, if it sparks in you a curiosity to say, I want to go like know more about these things, then it should. Like that's, that's exactly where God wants us to, to want to know more about him. Now I will say, because God is eternal and because he is mysterious by nature, there's never a f- like a full amount that you will know about God or even this reality. He hasn't spelled it out for us in a way that is clear for us to understand because I think that's the point. God says, you can't handle it right now. Like there is another layer. You know enough to get you by. Um, okay, chapter 11. So this angel comes. He says, hey, I've got this message for you. It concerns what's going to happen to your people. That's sort of the big point that he's like, planting the flag, and this message that I'm going to tell you concerns what will happen to your people. And so he's going to give them this message, and he uh, uses it by presenting two figures, the king of the south and the king of the north, and their uh, sort of uh, decades-long battle between fighting each other. And it's, um, I would love it if it was super clear, but it's not. And it's, um, it's, yeah, we'll just, um, we'll read. We'll read, we'll we'll read, and we'll, we'll see. Okay, so chapter 11, we'll start in verse 2. It says, Now then, I tell you the truth, three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. So that seems relatively understandable. There's three kings. One more is going to happen after those three kings. There's a fourth king. He's going to get everyone to fight against Greece, and then this Greece is going to have one king who's super powerful, and then he's going to disappear, and four other kingdoms will happen. This sounds similar to an idea we've already been presented with in chapter 7 and chapter 8, this idea that one kingdom will be broken up into four. And history uh, will sort of confirm that this is true. We see this playing out in history. There is a a Persian king named Xerxes I, and he is very wealthy, and he goes to battle against Greece. Um, He is defeated, and Alexander the Great sets up his great empire and shortly thereafter dies, and then his empire is split into four separate empires. But the focus of what we're going to be talking about, this king of the north and king of the south, does concern this empire that follows Alexander the Great. Um, And there is a northern kingdom set up, and there is a southern kingdom set up, and these battle for years and years and years. It's at least worth saying here that part of the problem that um, scholars have who are not believing scholars have with the book of Daniel is much of what it says actually happens or lines up very well with history. So much to the point where they actually have to, in order to like rationalize this, they, they found or like are searching for evidence to say that Daniel actually was written after the fact of all this. They say it's actually history, not prophecy. Um, there's a really good book that you can get in our library called Daniel in the Critic's Den. I thought that was a fun title uh, by, Josh Mc, by none other than Josh McDowell, which is a, a readable, but um, I would say really well done defense of, of an older date or later date. I, I have a hard time with like BC, like before Christ era, because it's higher number is, it's weird. I don't get it. So, but it's, it's a defense of Daniel being written exactly when it said it was written. And it's really well done. It's in the library. You can check it out. I read like 70% of it, and I did it in like a day. So it's not, and I'm not a fast reader, so it's worth picking up. Daniel and the Critics' Den. Um, Anyways, so we're in chapter 11. We can track some points in history in which we think he's referring to. It seems pretty pretty likely that he's talking about King Xerxes I of Persia, that he's also talking about Alexander the Great, and then he's also going to be start, going to start talking about this other, these other two empires, which are known as the Ptolemaic, and Seleucid dynasties. dynasties. Uh, we'll have a, a slide up there in just a second. Um, five through 11, 5 through 20 is this interesting dynamic, um, sort of like the nuance of what happens between these two empires of like how they sort of ar- arose. I'll give you the TLDR now. And then I'll say a little bit about that. After the fall of a great empire, another will rise up and destruction will be in its path. That's essentially what what happens in 1 through 20. 
The time that we see mo- like most closely coincides with Xerxes I, Alexander the Great, and the Ptolemaic and Seleucid dynasties. That are real dynasties that happened. They did fight back and forth. Um, history seems to confirm most of this. But like we said, prophecy is not analogous to history, and it's less so focused on the, the minutia of details than it is the general idea here. And so while much of this uh, does line up, there is some of it that people are just like, it doesn't completely line up. Um, but I think that's the point. And I'll, I'll get to that later. I think it's, it's a, probably a good thing for us that it mostly lines up, but also doesn't line up. You can hang your hat that this is probably what they're talking about. But you can also be com- comforted in saying, yeah, but we see broken kingdoms war back and forth all the time. So, um, the fall of the great empire, another will rise up, and destruction will be in its path. Basically, you have a king of the north. Um, after Alexander the Great dies, one of his um, sort of generals, his name is Ptolemy. Ptolemy, I always want to say Ptolemy, but that's not right, apparently. Ptolemy um, sets up this kingdom in the south. And in the south um, is where Egypt is located. So he sets up this kingdom. He's doing pretty well for himself. And he has another um, person who kind of serves with him, is a, a man named Seleucid. Um, Seleucus. Seleucus, I think. See, this is where it gets challenging. History is just as confusing as, as sometimes Daniel can be. Um, Seleucus and Ptolemy helped Seleucus take control of the north, fighting against a guy named Antigonus, and they finally defeat him. Seleucus sets up like a kingdom of the north, basically, and it's going well for a little while, and then they start fighting. And then to stop them fighting, uh, Seleucus uh, suggests that there's a marriage, or Ptolemy suggests there's a marriage between Ptolemy's daughter and Seleucus's, one of Seleucus's descendants. It doesn't go well. A lot of poisoning happening, a lot of killing. It's not great stuff. It's, it's horrible, actually, but it's a picture of, I think, beastly human kingdoms and the destruction that comes. Then we hear that some of the king of the north's descendants are going to fight against the king of the south's descendants. And all that we need to know uh, the, the big picture is that these two, this one great empire falls, two others rise up, and destruction is in their path. Um, and as we get to uh, sort of the next portion, the biggest kind of thing we want to see from 1121 through, 20, through 45 is that Israel is caught in the middle, and it's going to be really bad for them. Really, really bad for them. And if you were to, to subscribe to the view of Daniel being so distressed because of the vision he's seeing now, a vision that he's hearing about, you could understand why he would be so sad. Um, Israel is caught in the middle. And uh, we finally, uh, most likely this time of 21 through 45, coincides with a person named Antiochus IV, um, or an Antiochus Epiphanes is what he's commonly known as. His crit- I thought this was really funny. Epiphanes means the great, I believe, and then his, his critics of the day, um, which is like, it's kind of like a weird thing to be like, he, he proclaimed himself Antiochus Epiphanes. So he's like, I am Antiochus the great. And everyone's like, okay. It would be like me being like, hi, I'm Cody the great. It's nice to meet you. Like, it's a weird thing to do. And so his, his critics of the day started calling him um, Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the mad. So they're like, it was like a play on words, which I thought was fun. They're like, we don't like this guy. Anyways, he's not a great guy. He's kind of a jerk. Um, and that's, that's a nice way of saying it. Uh, so this most likely coincides with the rule of Antiochus. A lot of things that happened between 21 through 45 are in line with things that Antiochus did. Um, Israel's caught in the middle. He actually has control over Israel, and there's beef between um, the kind of governing authorities in Israel and what Antiochus wants. So Antiochus wants to Hellenize the world. So he wants to bring sort of Greek thought to the rest of the world, and whether or not they like it, they're going to do it. And so what he does is he forbids temple worship. So for, if you're a Jewish person and you've just been in exile and you've been allowed to rebuild your temple and you're super excited about that, and now a couple hundred, like a hundred years later, this guy comes up and sets his, uh, his like rule up and he says, hey, this thing that you love, you can't do it anymore. You can't worship the God that you literally built a temple for after like it being destroyed. You can't do that anymore. But he's not nice about it. He says, if you worship your God, um, if you perform daily sacrifices, if you do something, so the Jewish people would do circumcision as a sign of their covenant with God. And they said, if you circumcise your kids, you're going to die. I'll kill you. Um, and then he said, I would go even a step further. He says, I'm going to actually set up uh, an idol to my God in your God's temple. And so that's like, if you're a Jewish person, you're like, no, no, no. Like, I'm not even allowed in there. Only the high priest is. And you're going to go in there and put in your God and tell us now that we have to worship that God. Um, on top of that, he would 
uh, have people go to the temple and sacrifice pigs. So he would force Jewish people to sacrifice pigs on their temples. He says, you can't do your daily sacrifice, but you can take an animal, which your culture believes to be unclean and unworthy of you even really being around it, and I'm going to make you kill that and sacrifice it to this God. It's like the, the biggest like slap in the face to the respect of their culture, respect of their religion, which is uh, his father, Antiochus III, was actually pretty uh, friendly with the Jewish people. So this is a big switch in what they've been used to under the rule of other people. Um, there is a, uh, a story, there's a, a great Jewish book, which if you've ever, if you're interested in Jewish culture, um, there's a book that's like a really reader-friendly book called Jewish Literacy, and it basically is like, it's a rabbi who's writing to like young Jewish people nowadays who have no idea about their history and culture. And it basically just says like, here's what you need to know if you're a young Jewish person who, does, who who's just now starting to care about your, your culture. It's super reader-friendly, so I'd encourage you to read that. But in that book, he details um, in this period of time, Antiochus is like one of the biggest villains in Jewish history. And like in the lines of like Hitler being like one of the big, and like Himmler, all these guys in like Nazi Germany, like Antiochus is up there, if not worse than these guys. Um, there's a story of Antiochus making two Jewish mothers who had circumcised their sons. Um, they're paraded throughout the city with their newborn sons on their necks. They're tied around their necks, and then they're forced to jump off the city, like the temple walls, basically, for circumcising their kids. It's horrible, absolutely horrible. And so you can imagine Daniel seeing a vision like this and knowing the destruction um, that's going to happen. Their people just being deeply weighed down and saddened and depressed by all this news. And... Um, in this season, we're, we're told in 21 that some will rebel against these authorities. And it's here where if you've been a student of history, um, you're, you're familiar with the Maccabean Revolution, which actually happened. Um, it is uh, actually a pretty cool story. Um, I would encourage you to sort of look it up. But the, the, Maccabeans, the Maccabean Revolution was a story about a family, the Hasmoneans. And the Hasmoneans, um, there's a man named Mattathias. And Mattathias was a leader and a priest and Antiochus people come into his town, and they tell him, hey, you need to sacrifice this altar, like sacrifice to our God, um, this pig. And he's like, I won't do it. And then another Jewish person, he basically bribes him and says, I'll give you gold if you do this. And he's like, I'm not going to do it. And another, another Jewish person stands up and he says, I'll do it. Like, I'll get gold. And so one, it's a huge affront because you have your own countrymen forsaking like this deep covenant that you love. And so Mattathias, in his anger, kills the Jewish guy who's going to sacrifice to the other God kills the representative, and then kind of stirs up his people in revolt, and it's actually wildly successful. Um, and they go back, and they end up uh, having a pretty successful guerrilla warfare, and they rebuild the temple, kind of clear it out. But that's part of it. Um, what we see in the rest of Daniel 11, 21 through 45, is that some are faithful, but some are not. Um, just like the story in the Maccabees of the Jewish man who goes up to offer the sacrifice in place of Mattathias, um, that's pretty common. People just giving in to what's happening. And, and it's easy to look at them and say, why would you do that? Um, but also, when you hear the story about the Jewish mothers being paraded throughout the town, it's like, death is the option. Which is crazy when you think about Daniel showing pictures of three young men saying, we'll take death. We would, we would rather die than forsake our God. Which is a hard thing for us to really say we would do. But the call is faithfulness. Um, the end of Daniel chapter 11 is that the king of the north will fall. He's going to fall. Sort of like unimpressively, too. It just says he will pitch his royal trench between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. That's the end of chapter 11. There's a few things that are, I think, worth note here as we, as we wrap up our time. In Daniel 10 and 11. One, there's so much there. You can read so many books about what Daniel, and 11, Daniel chapter 10 and 11 is actually about. Um, and the minutia of like who we probably think it lines up with, it, with actual historical figures. Um, but there is still some, some good things for us to know. Um, one, we're told in, seven, in 2 and 7, chapter 2 and chapter 7, that there are four kingdoms. And what we're being told about right now is the third kingdom. So if you can imagine Daniel, you're thinking, this is bad there's one more kingdom to come still. Like, if, this, if it's this bad, how bad's the fourth kingdom going to be? There's one more kingdom to come. It's in line with other prophecies and, and visions we see in 2 and 7. We see an increasingly severe and beast-like nature of human kingdoms that's pictured in chapter 7. It's this idea that Daniel wants to get across that when human kingdoms and human powers 
choose and define right and wrong for themselves, they don't become like humans anymore. They become like beasts. It is a picture into the nature of us defining what is right and wrong rather than remaining faithful and, and choosing to let God define what is right and wrong. Um, but the overall promise of, of 2 and 7 and 8 um, and 10 is that God will one day confront the beasts and bring his own kingdom. Now, that's, that's comforting for us to know because we live on the other side of the history that we're reading about in Daniel chapter 10 and 11. Um, and we, for most of us, believe, a lot, most people believe that this kingdom that God's establishing is the one that he established through Jesus. And so we get to actually experience that kingdom now. Um, but it should be a hopeful note for, for the people to know that, that there will be great trial and calamity and destruction and hardships for their people for generations to come but God will one day bring it to an end. So this is why this book is, is a source of hope for many people throughout the years. Um, it is also worth saying, worth noting, that while much of this aligns up with what we be, who we believe to be about Antiochus IV, some people believe it's about Roman destruction of the temple, and there's good reason for that, and other people believe that it's actually talking about future events that'll happen. Um, chapter 12 will deal with sort of a little bit more of the mysteriousness of that, 11, we can pretty much say, like, we're, we're, like, really sure it's about Antiochus. But as we get into 12, we're like, but then it kind of switches, and we're not so sure. Um, and so the overall goal is, is probably that's the point. The, the point is that you can, you can look with some degree of certainty that God has told you bad things are going to happen, but he will make it right one day, and your cause to be faithful. But also know that, like, if God wanted us to know every exact thing that was going to happen with, with 100% degree of clarity, he would have he had us do it. He would have told us, but he told us enough, basically. And what I love about Daniel chapter 10 and 11 is what it calls people to is faith and faithfulness. Like, we have to have faith that God will do what he said he's done. We have to look back at how God has brought his people throughout history and say, I trust that the God there is the God who will take us there and is the same God now in the situation and season, and then choose humility and say, he knows and I do not, and I will be faithful, and I will seek his will and authority over my own. So, Daniel is a wonderful work of art, a, a beautiful book designed to show us uh, that, that God's people in any season and situation are called to faithfulness and humility and respect to who our God is and to choose him despite whatever awful and horrible circumstances you might find yourself in. And I think it's probably really encouraging for us now in the midst of a global pandemic to say we can look back at a people and a time and a place where it was far, far worse, and we can experience hardships that feel incredibly hard and difficult. And many of us find ourselves in that situation and be comforted, knowing that one day God will bring an end to this, and we have hope, and we can choose faithfulness and know that that is our path. And that's a good thing. So we pray, and you are dismissed. I guess I can dismiss you. Yeah. Father, thank you for your book. Thank you that we can study your word. Thank you that it is mysterious yet understandable. It is close and uh, worth diving into, yet it is something we will never um, find a true end in the, the knowledge that it contains. We're so grateful that you are bigger than us, that you know and we do not. And we are so grateful that you've made it incredibly simple for us, God, to choose faithfulness and humility. It could be so much more, but all you've asked of us is to be faithful to you in this season. So, God, we ask that you would encourage us this week as we uh, set out to do just that, to be faithful, to humble ourselves, to seek you in all that we do, um, and to love others and to love you. In your name we pray. Amen.